You're on Sunday night with me, John Cleary, and in just a moment we'll be joined by one of the world's most distinguished thinkers in the world of philosophy and religion, Professor Dennis Turner, in Australia at present as Professorial Fellow at the Australian Catholic University in Melbourne. Well, he's chosen one or two favourite musical selections for us, and here is the first, the opening of Karloff's magnificent Carmina Burana. on Sunday nights on ABC Radio, through Radio Australia and via the web to the world. John Cleary with you. Our guest now is Professor Dennis Turner. Recently in Melbourne to present a lecture on denying the right God, Professor Dennis Turner is uh, previously Professor of Historical Theology at Yale University, before that Professor of Divinity at the University of Cambridge, and the author of numerous articles, books, etc. on Christian thought. Dennis Turner, welcome to Sunday Night. Thank you. Delightful to be here. Dennis Turner, one of the ongoing discussions at the moment seems to be a response uh, about the sort of aggressive tone of atheism over the last few years with people like uh, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett and others. Just a week or so ago, uh, we spoke with uh, a nuclear scientist, uh, Ian Hutchinson, Professor Ian Hutchinson from MIT, who suggested that part of the problem that people like Dawkins and others use is a narrowness of language that really doesn't allow you to talk about knowledge in ways that allow uh, permission to, to speak about anything except in very narrow scientific terms. Do you share those observations? Very much so. I think it's a peculiarity of a number of the kind of scientific forms of rejection of belief, that they, in fact, have a very narrow view even of scientific method itself. And it's not surprising to hear from eminent scientists that they're not entirely happy with the representation of science by some of these atheistic positions. You mentioned Richard Dawkins, and he, I think, is a very, very much a case in point where he thinks that what he understands by the science of evolution excludes any possibility of God. And it's not at all clear why that is so. I mean, why it couldn't be both true that there is an evolutionary explanation of the origin of species and that you can have a creationist view of how come we are where we are in, in that respect. So there's this kind of systematic narrowness which curiously seems not particularly scientific. I mean, it's nothing much to do with science, the nature of science, that it is supposed to be the whole picture. That's not a scientific statement. That's a philosophical statement and is challengeable on, on grounds which have nothing to do with science. So it's very odd. Um, and uh, well, one wonders what exactly is going on here because it's not really science that is causing the problem. It's a refusal of any belief other than that of science and that, of course, is not a matter of science. Yes, that's a matter of a belief system in itself. Exactly. Yes. Well, one of the things you point to, I think, is that um, that really the challenge intellectually these days for those in the what used to be called the Christian West and the, and the way we see religion in in decline, and certainly in institutional practice sure. anyway, mm -hmm. is not so much intellectually vigorous atheism so much as indifferentism. Yeah. 
I think that is much more of a challenge. Actually, in a way, atheists of the militant sort, like Richard Dawkins, keep us theologians in business because we actually have a straightforward sense of opposition and intellectual challenge, which we can represent to one another and engage in an argument about. But what about the very large majority of people who claim to be atheists, not in some sort of systematic way, it's just that they're not interested. The question doesn't arise for them, so they're not really bothered as to whether if some people want to believe in the existence of God and other people don't, because the, the whole issue passes them by. And that, I think, is much, much more serious challenge. Just simply being bored by the business uh, is a much bigger challenge than being really interested in denying it. Because that challenge is one that rests with every person in every street. That is, so. God yeah. no longer crosses their intellectual horizons and doesn't right. need to. That's right. And they're not troubled by the denial of God and they're not particularly interested in the affirmation of God. So it, it just is of no particular interest to them. And I think that that is much more of a challenge. Whereas, you see, I mean, one recognises an opponent in Richard Dawkins, but the, the, the soft denial that you're talking about, um, just who cares? Well, you've got very little to get a grip on there. I mean, where do you start? Um, it's, it's much more of a, uh, to me, much more of a challenge. So where do you start? It depends on your purpose, you see. I mean, I'm an academic and I start <laughs> with questions which mightn't be everyday sorts of questions, but I find myself, just, just to get this out of the way, I mean, I find myself... Um, uh, wanting to say, but look, there's a certain kind of question which you can refuse to engage with if you want, but to refuse to engage in that question is to refuse to accept the responsibilities of questioning. Uh, and one of them is, well, why is there anything at all rather than nothing? It's a very difficult question to formulate with any kind of clarity. There might have been nothing at all. Now, I might have run out of time, so there's no time left. I might have run out of food, so there's no food left. I might have run out of this, that or the other, whatever, or any of that, those running out of things is perfectly intelligible. But just imagine what it would be like if there were nothing at all. And there isn't something it would be like if there were nothing at all. The question is, how come there is anything and that is a question which cannot be answered simply in terms of science or poetry or art or anything else because all those presuppose that there is something in existence. But this very, very difficult question, why is there ending at all, challenges the mind in a way which the refusal to engage with that is at the root of the refusal to engage with the question of God. Because the answer why, to why is there anything at all has to be, well, whatever accounts for that, you've got the name for it and that, that name is God. Now, that probably sounds fairly academic. I actually think it's very existential, but that you, you are sometimes faced with this question, I can understand why there's this, I can understand why there's that, and I can do science in order to explain the other. But why is there anything at all? Why do I exist? Children ask this question. And later on in life, we kind of suppress it uh, and just want to answer answerable questions, whereas this question is a sort of ultimate challenge. Science that, is essentially about how things are, not precisely. that they are. Not that things are. And I mean, Wittgenstein, that, that great Austrian philosopher of the 20th century, uh, put it precisely that way, that, that where we are at home is with the questions, how come things are this way or that? 
where we're not at home is with a question which kind of undercuts all those questions asked. Why is there anything at all? Why that there is anything at all is so puzzling a question. The problem is when you start asking those questions, the childlike approach, well, why is there anything at all? Because God created it. Well, who yeah. created God? You get stuck in uh-huh. philosophy one and the infinite regress. Uh, well, uh, indeed you do. And I, I think then you kind of move on to more familiar territory of argument and debate. And, uh, and I think that is something where one enters into the ordinary business of human reasoning and argument and so on. And I'm not saying that there's any position from which the existence of God becomes utterly obvious. It's always a challenge to think through to God. It's it's never easygoing thought, do you see what I mean? Uh, Whereas I think the point about science is that science exists to make you happy with the way things are because it offers an account of how things are. Yes, it gives us a sense of at least uh, primitive security. Primitive security, exactly so. Um, And I think that that the rather sort of dizzying kind of questions are the questions which get left unasked by science, and very properly so, because science isn't equipped to answer them. And these dizzying questions like, how come there is anything? Might there not have been nothing at all? And it's very hard to conceive of what one means in those circumstances. But as I repeat, children of the age of three or four frequently address those questions. And I have the suspicion that a lot of our education is designed to ensure that we drop those questions and don't ask them anymore. Philosophers insist on being children all over again. That's what Thomas Aquinas said, also Aristotle said going way back into Greek time, to said you've got to get back to those primitive questions which are ultimately challenging. And then you see, I think you are starting to get to that edge of mystery that there is about the world, which you can't deal with in a straightforward methodological manner such as science is best equipped to do. You're off the edge. And once you're off the edge, you're doing theology. I'm sorry about that, the atheist, but you are. So in order to be an atheist, you've got to not ask questions. That's my feeling about it. It rather reminds one of uh, Leah and the Fool. Nothing will come of nothing. That is, this question of what is nothing is something of substance. Mm -hmm. Well, you see, I think that going back to your point, that if you could ask, well, how come there's God then it wouldn't be God you're talking about because God would have to be the ultimate answer. Otherwise, it would be something within the world which needs explanation rather than explanation of it. So if it's going to be an explanation of how come there's anything, then there can't be a question as to how come there is that explanation. And that's why you would reserve the name God for whatever answer to that. And that's a Wittgenstein quote too, uh, hanging in in the offing. Let's talk a little about then what science and religion are saying to each other. Because Mm. it does seem to me that leaving aside the Dawkins, Dennett's and those those sort of aggressive atheism, that science in a way has over the last 500 years placed boundaries around religion. Mm. And some of those boundaries are legitimate. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, one needs to distinguish between what counts as a proper scientific explanation. And that's important because 
what counts as a proper scientific question is determined by what science is equipped to answer. And I think that sort of relationship, a comfortable relationship between the questions and the answers, is very characteristic of science. But a few years ago, a fellow professor in Yale and myself, and a philosopher, uh, that fellow professor being a, an astronomer, the three of us got together and organised a conference of uh, cosmologists, philosophers and theologians to ask that question which I mentioned to you earlier, why is there anything at all? And we came to the conclusion that all three of us had the same degree of puzzlement about that question. All three of us felt you needed to ask it and we weren't at all sure what counts as the right way of setting about answering it. And that, I think, muddies the waters a bit. It made it less than fully clear as to what counts as a scientific, as distinct from a theological or philosophical question. And we were equally puzzled by that question. There were, of course, some who said that the question isn't a good question at all. It's a kind of bogus question. But th th those of us at that conference, of about 80 scientists and philosophers and, and theologians, we all felt the question was legitimate. Let's put it another way. We all felt you can't suppress that question. You can't just dismiss it and say you can't ask it. So we were kind of muddying the waters as between the clarity of science and scientific method, philosophical questions and theological questions, and sort of getting them to kind of talk to one another, though... It, we were uncertain as to what counted as, as it were, the good grammar of that talk. I think what we were doing was just simply saying, we're fine with penultimacy. We can, science can deal with science and philosophy with philosophy, theology with theology. But there are very ultimate questions where it's not so clear that the boundary lines between those three disciplines are absolutely certain and easily, easily stated. There are some boundaries, though, that have become clear. That is, science has told us that in terms of explanations for the world and why it is, there are limits to what you can say about the nature of an interventionist god, for example. Yes, yes, yes. I, th I think that is right, and I think it is important that theologians know not to talk science in a bogus kind of way yes. when they don't know it and, uh, and so on. And I think that the need for disciplined thought is really important here, and uh, it does worry me that a lot of Christians claim to offer alternative science, as, for example, certain kinds of creationists do, in order to offer some kind of place for the book of Genesis on creation. There is no such thing as an alternative science. There is only science. If it's not science, it's nonsense, if <laughs> you see what I mean. And, and I'm perfectly happy with that. So there, there is a need for disciplinary boundaries and being clear about them. And, and theologians have no business transgressing those boundaries as if they had some authority to speak quasi-scientifically on the basis of Genesis. There is absolutely no grounds for that. And science does pose some deep um, philosophical come theological questions mm -hmm. for religion. Uh, for example, evolution, which you say religion can't get into the scientific argument about that because it's a category mm -hmm. mistake. However, science can pose questions that challenge religion out of that view. For instance, deep time. If the universe is 13 point whatever billion years old, yeah. God took a very long time to get interested in it. Mm. 
Yes, I, I think that's right. I mean, that's a sort of what's the story here? If you're supposing that God created a world in which you took from midnight to one o'clock to get where we are, and we human beings have been on the map for the last 30 seconds out of that hour, which is roughly the proportions we're talking about. You know, what sort of story is that? I mean, why does God, you know, uh, create a world? He was off doing other things for a very long time. <laughs> well, he wasn't doing very much because uh, it was kind of doing it for itself, wasn't it? I mean, you know, the universe, Big Bang and whatever, explains how the laws of science emerge from a primitive kind of chaos, and those laws ultimately generate us who are in the position to state those laws. So there's this sort of curious history in which, as I say, for um, uh, 59 minutes, 57 seconds, there's this sort of series of natural events. And in the last three seconds, there are people who can actually understand those natural events. And in a subset of that, God gets interested in us. Yeah, well, quite. Uh, uh, Well, God brings it about that that there are us for him to be interested in. And this is all very curious. It's a bit counterintuitive, I agree, and I don't really have an answer to that. Um, It's a puzzle to me. The other problem, uh, legitimately raised by the evolutionary biology question, is why this mechanism, why natural selection, which appears to be... Pretty vicious and nasty. Nature mm-hmm. red in tooth and claw, as was stated sh- shortly after Darwin. <laughs> yes, quite, quite. Um, yes, I mean, there, there is that question, and I don't know, you see. I mean, let's put it this way. Part of the problem is this. We aren't exactly the storytellers. We are in, on the inside of the story. We're being told by it. And it's not entirely surprising that, as it were, the characters within the story, not being the authors of the story their characters in, don't fully understand the whole story. And I think one has to have a decent agnosticism about this. I don't have an answer to that, and I don't see how anybody can. But I'm not entirely prepared to give up on God simply because I don't know quite why God sets about doing things this way. Uh, It's a pretty significant challenge, though, if through your tradition you are taught certain principles about the nature of God, that is, all-loving, all-merciful, etc., yeah. So it, it, it comes once you try and define out of whom you wish to believe God is or God mm. is the summary of um, to then confront that mechanism. Yeah, but I, I mean, on the other hand, you see, I mean, I spend a lot of my time in so far as I'm a theologian at all, trying to prevent people looking for easy answers to that. And I, I think too many Christian stories about that are just easy answers, which don't really do any work. I mean, they're easy answers, but they're utterly unconvincing. I actually prefer the, is this a kind of intellectual snobbery? I don't think we ought to regard ourselves as being in a position to understand all the mysteries there are of the universe, its creation of human nature and all the rest. And I think there are questions which we don't have easy answers to. And it does really worry me, as much as it worries me that Dawkins has easy answers of an atheist sort, that a lot of Christians have easy uh, answers of a theistic sort, and I say a plague to be visited on both their houses. I really am not interested in that. I'm actually interested in the, 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 the recognition of of amazing and wonderful mystery. 
And I think science contributes enormously to our sense of the mystery of the universe. And to find the mystery as somehow or other a problem for theology is a very, very odd position to find oneself in. I thought theologians were actually the, the great enthusiasts for mystery. And just at this point, I should uh, interrupt to say there is noise in the background. It's not your set, folks. It is construction work at the, uh, at the ABC. And Professor Dennis Turner, we will proceed with our conversation and sure. uh, perhaps take some music uh, now while we're getting our breath and come back and talk about, well, what is reasonable about belief in God and why should we bother? Our guest on Sunday nights, Professor Dennis Turner, Professor of Historical Theology at Yale and formerly that, Professor of Divinity at the University of Cambridge. And right now, a selection of Mozart. Now, you must introduce this for us. It's from the C minor mass, but a very particular moment. It's the uh, Et Incarnatus Est, and he was made man um, at the middle of the creed. Uh, Mozart set this mass. Uh, he didn't complete it, but he set this mass as a wedding present to his wife, Constanza, at which she sang. So this... Uh, uh, it, it, this setting of the Et Incarnatus Est sounds, it reads exactly as a love song to his wife, sung by his wife, and at the same time it is profoundly theological profoundly theological in the sense that um, there's a long tradition in the Middle Ages of speaking of the Incarnation as a love song of God to the human race, and that God so loved the human race that he became man and uh, I think Mozart kind of gets that that feel of this et incarnatus est and he became man as if it were a kiss offered to one's beloved. Mozart from the C minor mass. Music of Mozart from the C minor Mass et Incarnatus Est. It's a selection of our guest, Professor Dennis Turner, formerly Professor of Historical Theology at Yale and also at the University of Cambridge, a Professor of Divinity. Dennis Turner, that uh, music of Mozart there is introducing us into a way we can talk about religion that has meaning. There is both aesthetic depth there and there is also the notion of the historical revelation that is this is something that happened yeah that's correct and one needs to look carefully and I think I'd almost put it non-theologically at the event which we call the incarnation because the central event within that larger event of God becoming man is the cross. That is to say, the execution illegally of an innocent man, that all the meaning of the universe is contained in that appalling event. It, it tells you what sin is. Sin results in the death of God. It tells us that, on the other hand, that death is also a redemption. And this is 
an extraordinary mystery, an extraordinary idea that the meaning of the universe should be found within a historical event of that character, an event of profound injustice and of the suffering of a man unjustly is the place in which the meaning of the universe is to be found. That is deeply paradoxical. Now, I say to the atheist, if you want to reject anything, don't reject an abstract God. Reject the meaning of that narrative. And that becomes a much more complex thing. It's more like saying, my theory of knowledge means that Shakespeare makes no sense. Uh, And that is an outrageous sort of thing to say. Shakespeare makes a lot more sense than a lot of scientists ever make. So to have a notion of science which eliminates the possibility of Shakespeare is completely outrageous. And and I think I want to say this about a scientific mentality which says I can exclude Christianity from the picture. I'd say, look, what you're doing is more like excluding Shakespeare from your world than it is for excluding some abstract proposition. Well, it may be possible, though, for the scientists to say in that context, no, no, I utterly accept the meaning, the historical relevance and what you draw from it from the death of Jesus. I I accept that he lived, that Mm -hmm. it was a real historical event, and I accept the meaning, both the aesthetic and philosophical meaning that you you can put into that. But that doesn't speak to me about a thing called God that is perhaps transcendent? Uh, well, you see, I think it does. And I think, I, I think Christians have a responsibility to explain themselves a bit more clearly. You see, I come from a stable which will surprise you, I mean, in my theological thinking. I, I come from a 13th century stable. I think Thomas Aquinas gets this right. He says at the very beginning of an enormous volume, which he calls a summary of theology, uh, he says at the very beginning of that, that what we do in theology is to give some account of the relationship of God to the world. And we have to start with the following proposition, that we do not know what God is. And he makes this absolutely clear at the beginning of this work, which contains, I calculate, one and a half million words, that he begins with the proposition that we don't know in a very important sense what we're talking about. He then says we know God through his effects. And that's where the incarnation comes into it, because as as Thomas Aquinas says, the principal effect of God through which we know God is the cross, the incarnation, and it's, it's turning out to be an execution of an innocent man. That is where God is revealed, not in some abstract philosophy, but in that concrete historical event. So there is no Christian God other than that which is revealed on the cross. Now, that's the mystery, and that's the mystery of God. That is where, as it were, mystery enters into human history and totally transforms it. You have to read history in terms of that. Now, that's a long story, but I insist it's a story. It's not a proposition. It's not a proposition about God. It's an event in time and history, and there is no other way in which God is revealed to us except through that cross of Christ. Now, that's Paul, and that's the Christian message. Hanging off that, though, for somebody who's coming it for the first time, is a notion that, well, okay, I can understand that you're offering me 
a retelling of the birth, death, rebirth story. That's there in in many ancient religious traditions. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't necessarily mean that those religious traditions are giving evidence of any sort of truth beyond the meaning that one reads into that event. Mm Mm-hmm. So where does it take me in this quest for God? I can acknowledge that perhaps what it reveals is Christianity is telling me about a profound truth about the way humans need to relate to each other and the universe. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't tell me anything about an ultimate other. Oh, it might say that the way to come to an understanding, a realisation, a recognition of an ultimate other is what Christianity offers, that it offers the way. Uh, And I think that's how early Christians actually spoke about it. Uh, And that's a quotation Jesus himself says, you know, I am the way, the truth and the life. And uh, the the way is um, basically what he's talking about himself uh, and the events of his life. That's the way into the truth. It is to be found in the mystery of the cross. This is the elementary understanding that Christianity offers of itself, that it is a way into a truth. It's not somehow or other the truth sort of plonk down in front of us is actually what it puts down in front of us is a tragedy. So um, it's essentially experiential. That yeah. is, the, and I'm not experiential in, in the way that one associates with perhaps some fringes of charismatic religion. It's experiential yeah. in the sense of immersing yourself in a way of being. That's right, precisely so. And uh, uh, and a, a theologian uh, who I'm very fond of, uh, Herbert McCabe, a Dominican theologian, English Dominican theologian, when asked once what was the message of, of Jesus Christ, and the message is simply this, that if you don't love, you're scarcely alive, and if you do love, you'll almost certainly be killed. And that's a kind of shorthand way of summarising the whole story, but it's not a bad one. Yes, Graham Greene spent some time pondering the same thing, I think, if you look at literature. What that also resonates with, interestingly enough, as we're living through a a period where Western Christianity, particularly European Western Christianity, is in precipitate decline, particularly in areas that have to do with doctrine and the way beliefs are expressed, Mm. is you're returning to an essential experiential view and sure. that is what resonates. That is, yeah, see these yeah. Christians, how they love one another, going back to Paul uh, mm-hmm. and the New Testament, seems to be the way in which many theologians are now beginning to talk about God. That, that is, if, if you want to do the institutional doctrinal thing, no, I'm not in there. But if you want to talk about how life is to be lived, then I'm, yeah. I'm happy to sit down and talk to you. Well, that's right. And actually, you see, in a way, the interlude which we had playing that piece of Mozart, which is about the incarnation, just made me think that what we had been talking about before could have sounded like a very abstract and highfalutin kind of notion of God. You know, it's basically only people with time to spend reading books or or engaging in arguments in universities would have any time for. But I I just sort sort of thought, well, yes, but you see, putting the Mozart thing in there, et incarnatus, yes, and he was made man and then was crucified and died and was buried and was raised again and all that. That's the true story. It's not abstract. It's it's very concrete, historical, experiential, as you say, and it's something you have to live your way into and not just think your way into. Mm. And it can't be about anything more fundamental, humanly speaking, than being about love and death. There is nothing else. 
Our guest on Sunday night, Professor Dennis Turner. He'd been in Australia uh, for a public lecture at the Australian Catholic University on denying the right God. Dennis Turner then, finally, in our discussion, what for you is a right way of approaching God? What is the right God? Mm. I'm very inclined to a sort of general proposition about that, and that is that... um, It's kind of biblical. It's an Old Testament view that knowing God is doing justice. And I think that that connects up with what I was just saying about the life of Christ, which essentially contains the central mystery of Christianity, which is that loving results in death. Knowing God is expressed, is found in doing justice, that the Ten Commandments don't so much seem like commandments which come from God. They're more instructions about where you're going to find God and it will be found in the rejection of murder, in the rejection of unfaithful love, in the rejection of idolatries, that easygoing kind of theology which sort of rests upon human images and, uh, and denies all the stress and challenge of Christianity. So... Knowing God is doing justice connects with that idea of, well, if you commit yourself to justice, then you put yourself in danger. That kind of knife-edged thought that Christianity is about ultimately decisive things brings me back to where we started, that if you're going to engage in an intellectual conversation, it's about ultimately decisive things, ultimate questions. That kind of puts the, 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 the whole thing together so far as I'm concerned. Dennis Turner, it's been great to have you with us on Sunday night. We do apologise for the uh, for the rumblings in the background. Uh, noises well, off, I think it's the <laughs> best thing noises to describe exactly. as. Yeah, but they're fairly inarticulate noises off, so... Uh, <laughs> and they will bad. always be with us. Dennis Turner, it's been great to have you with us. Let's finish with another piece of music you've selected for us, and this time Beethoven. Yes, I, I've chosen the first movement of a very late string quartet that Beethoven wrote, very much towards the end of the, his life. And I've chosen it because it's Beethoven kind of finally at peace with himself and I think it's one of the most magical pieces of music that that man who was such a magical composer I mean I I think at this point he he wrote this piece of music when he realised the end was near and it's his swan song I think and I think it's quite the most beautiful piece of music there is From the first movement of the quartet in C sharp minor, Beethoven Professor Dennis Turner thanks so much for joining us Thank you very much indeed. I've enjoyed it much.